Views expressed are not necessarily those of the management or ownership of KSTPAM 1500 ESPN. Oh, hi. Who is it? This is the place to talk about everything related to the home. Buying or selling real estate, financing, and improvements that can help increase your home's value. I'm gonna make this place your this is Minnesota Home Talk on Score North. Here's your host, Mike Overson. Good morning and welcome to Minnesota Home Talk here on ESPN 1500. Or is it 1500 ESPN? That order always that gets one. me. You 1500 ESPN? Yes. Number first? Yes. It's like a house address. That's how I remember it right there. We are talking everything mortgages, real estate, credit repair this morning. We have phone lines open. We're going to be giving away some prizes uh, this morning to the best question uh, from one of our listeners here. Um, And as always, we always welcome your calls and comments and texts, your questions that come in. Um, We'll definitely certainly answer those um, live on the air this morning. Um, Call in number. uh, We're going to get that out right away here. The phone lines are open already. Uh, Six. 657 2910 Again, 651-647-2910. And we have a text line as well. That's 763-443-5664. Again, 763-443-5664. Again, talking everything mortgages and real estate uh, and even credit repair and home insurance if you have any sort of home insurance uh, questions as well. If you haven't caught our show before, we are here uh, every Saturday from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. So we get our guests out of bed nice and early on a Saturday so they can drive up here and join the show with us. Uh, we have uh, Jonathan Walgrave in uh, the studio with us this morning. He came back. We're going to we're gonna talk a little bit more and, and continue um, our discussion that we had with him just a couple weeks ago about the difference between short-term rentals and long-term rentals. Um, the pros, the cons, the tax benefits, uh, and ramifications that come with it, and just some of the things to look out for uh, if you're looking at getting into the, either the short-term rental or the long-term rental game. Uh, and again, uh, any question dealing with mortgages, real estate, or credit repair, or home insurance are, are welcome this morning. Uh, the best question of the morning is going to win uh, two pair of tickets, so four tickets total, to a St. Paul Saints game. That phone line again, 651-647-2910. And the text line is 763-443-5664. You can also catch us live on Facebook. And we also stream, where else do we stream there, Evan? YouTube. YouTube. You ever heard of YouTube before, Jonathan? <laughs> I've almost reached the end of it, I think. <laughs> I know the end of it. <laughs> YouTube, the second largest search engine, right, in the world, next to the Google? Yeah, I think so. I may think that's the stat. So, I mean, I learned how to do most of my house projects and my car projects via YouTube. For sure. We we just had our, uh, one of our grills went down a couple days ago and wasn't getting gas from the propane to the actual burners. And it's the first thing I went, I'm like, someone's got to have a video on this. Like, right. what, what is my regulator, my hose, and do want to blow myself up, so I'm like, I'm going to go to YouTube. <laughs> right. <laughs> It is the uh, it is the all encompassing DIY yep. encyclopedia for sure. I love YouTube. Uh, okay, so going into here, so we're going to talk about some. Uh, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about rates this morning. I spoke about that. We're going to talk about um, uh, an article I saw yesterday about micro units and kind of g- a governmental push to go towards micro units and and what is that? We'll talk about that here in a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about 
uh, reasons why buying a house in 2022 is still a good idea. Uh, the, the title of the article here is, Should I Buy a House in 2022? The answer, surprisingly, is yes. Uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit. And then, like I said, we'll get into the short-term versus long-term rental stuff. So big news. Let's get into rates. So big news of the week here. Um, you guys probably saw in the headlines the Fed's raised interest rates by three-quarters of a point. Um, you guys probably know what happened to mortgage rates and what happened to mortgage rates this week then because of that. They went I, down. I love having that debate with people. I'm always like, Mike, nope, nope. I'm gonna let me show you Mike. They go down. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. I had this I had a conversation Monday and Tuesday this week were big for me because people saw that the Fed meeting was on Wednesday and it's likely they're gonna raise rates. So yep. they called me on Monday and Tuesday to say we should lock in before the Feds raise rates again. And I said, That is the <laughs> biggest mistake you could make. And so I went back every single time this year. So I just went back. So I pulled out the market. I said, these are the dates when the Feds raised interest rates this year. This is how the market reacted every single time after that. The mortgage market got better every single time. And that's history will just tell us that, too. Um, And I said, I can guarantee you that when they say that they're going to raise rates officially on Wednesday, our rates on Thursday and Friday are going to go down. Yeah, Sure enough, that's what happened. So um, and they went down pretty big. Too. So, I was going to say, I saw you had a video posted yesterday or something. Yeah. I, I caught it last night, looking at scrolling Facebook, going to bed, and I'm like, oh, here's a video from Mike. And yep. So, yep. So, um, we have a jumbo 30 year fixed rate. I, I literally met with a guy uh, yesterday, which is Friday, from 3 to 4 30, and he's up in the jumbo category. So, he was looking at anywhere between 800,000 to 1.1 is what he's looking at. So, we ran a scenario where he's going to be, if he was at a million and he put 20% down, he would be at 4.625 on a 30 year fixed. It'd be no points. If he wanted to pay a point, he'd be down to 4.375. Wow. And if next week, if we get the same kind of momentum that we had on Thursday, Friday this week, if that same momentum carries through next week, I mean, he would be, he might hit 4% flat or 4.125 on that 30 year fix for a, for one point. So did, did these come down like on one or almost 2% or something? So the, about almost a half a percent okay. from Wednesday. Okay. So yeah, from, uh, the, from the rate increase. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So like a standard, like a standard conventional 30 year fix on Monday was hovering around six. Yep. Now that same loan today or the end of the day Friday was at five and a half. Wow. So a pretty big swing. Now, if if we look earlier this year when this happened, right, the initial knee-jerk reaction of the market is, boom, market gets that much better, rates drop down that much. I will say that each time this year when that's happened, it's been a short-lived deal. If rates went down a half a percent within a week after them going down a half a percent, they were back up at least another quarter. Yeah. Right? So our net effect was about a quarter better-ish. Yep. Still good that it went down, but it's one of those things where you don't know how long the market reacts to this and how long it hangs there. Um, so keep that in mind. But nonetheless, we predicted it correctly again, right? Feds raise rates. That means mortgage interest rates go down. It always seems like the money is basically sloshing back and forth, right? You know, like it's all in one big bucket, and depending on where the the, the whole thing is tilting, yeah. that's where it goes. But the wave's going to come back the other way, and all the interest rates kind of equalize across the board after a, a pretty short readjustment. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of a good analogy. You make some waves, the yeah. waves eventually will settle down, and everything kind of levels and evens back out again. Yeah. You know, but that's, I mean, that's the way it is. I remember the first, I remember when Brexit happened. You remember that when Great Britain left the European Union back in 2012? 13, something like that. 
Seven million years ago. Whenever it happened. <laughs> it was the first time in my career that I saw interest rates go below 4% for a 30-year fixed. And it was like, holy cow, this is incredible. And everyone was like, why are why did rates go below 4%? Like They yeah. literally were just drop, 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 drop because the market was getting that much better. Um, and it was because Great Britain left the European Union. And that's what caused mortgage rates in the U.S. to drop below 4% for the first time in my career since well, I don't think I ever knew 2004. That. You know, then it was call, call, call. You know, rates are at three nine nine, three nine nine. You got to refinance. You got to refinance. And then, obviously, with COVID came around, you know, that three nine nine shock that we got. You know, that was all the way down to. I mean, we got down to like two and a half there on a thirty year fixed, which is just crazy. And uh, we've already got our first text question on the show. If you've got a text question for us, seven six three four four three five six six four. One more time. That's seven six three four four three. Five six six four to text in your questions. Sarah wants to know: Will rates ever get back to that point, to the threes even, or are the days of refinancing over if you bought in the last few years? That's a great question. Christian I don't, all time. <laughs> I don't. If if we see them get back into the threes, it'll be high threes and it won't be long lived. That's yeah. my personal opinion. Will they ever get back into the twos? I mean, I guess never say never, but in our lifetime, I don't think so. Because mortgages have been around, I should say not mortgages, but like basically federally subsidized mortgage. Like when did Fannie and Freddie come into the mix? When did the government come out with Fannie and Freddie? That's what we got to look at because that's what our environment is now. If you look outside of Fannie and Freddie and just look at straight, if the banks made their own rules and this and that, they wouldn't even have 30-year fix, to be honest with you. They would have all adjustable rates. It, you could still get a 30-year loan, but your rate's going to be fixed for anywhere between 5 and 10 years. After that, it's going to adjust with the market for the remainder of the loan. That's how banks would want to do it. Now, Fannie and Freddie came in with the government, put that up to say, look, we want affordable housing, we want predictable housing. So we will be a buyer of these mortgages, um, banks that you lend on, so you can do a 30-year fixed at this rate. We will buy those mortgages, and now you have an outlet to sell those so you don't have to hold the bag on on those. And so that's the only reason, really, why we have 30-year fixed-rate mortgages in this country is because the government stepped in, and they created Fannie and Freddie, and we have that whole bit. Um, are you looking that up, Evan? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it goes back into the conversation we were t- talking about with uh, flop houses and efficiency units and kind of the changes in the post-New Deal era, because that's, that's when Fannie and Freddie were initially founded, was in 1938. Yeah, and it comes back to that idea of promoting home ownership. Right. We don't want people living in tiny rentals. We want everyone to buy a house, and we want everyone to be able to afford to buy a house. Yep. Well, we might be coming full circle on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The whole micro unit thing. Yeah. You know, but you know, so yeah. So the, with the micro unit thing going to that, but I guess going back to the rate thing, do I think we'll ever see that? I think we can see rates back in the high threes at some point. Yep. Um, I don't think we'll see rates. 30-year fixed rates that start with a two in our lifetime. So I don't think that'll happen again. Who knows? 100, 100, 200 years down the road, maybe. Who knows? We'll see. I mean, the thing that drove fixed rates there, I mean, you've got a recession that's specifically targeted towards the housing market. The 2008 collapse was led by the housing market. And the way that government was targeting that collapse was by saying, well, we're just going to buy way more of these loans. We'll just subsidize this market even more. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, unless we have both those things happen at the same time again, nothing's going to push rates to that kind of point. No. Again. I mean, what did rates get down to in the crash? Real low. I N- can look not, it up. not this low. No. 
You know what I mean? So look, look at, I mean, look how crazy that crash was that happened in 2006, 2007, 2008, right? And it went all the way. Basically, 2012 was when it bottomed out yep. and when it started crawling back out of there. Um, even through that whole craziness there, I mean, rates got to... I think 3.25 I had in 2012. For a 30-year? Yep. Okay. That, you did it, actually. That was the last house we were just in. So they did get that low. Interesting. The other thing that's tough when talking about this stuff is like you can you can go to all these different websites and they'll talk about like what the average rate was. But what does average rate mean? Does it mean the average rate that people were actually getting? Or does it mean the average rate when you just do a spread of all the possible credit scores and then you pick the middle? Because some of these, it's like, no, that's definitely not right. Like one of these websites is saying, oh, the average rate in 2009 was 6.3%. And it's like, no, I don't think that was the average. What we were talking about on the show, that was not what was happening in the marketplace. Yeah. So that's the other thing too is you got to remember in in that in the two thousand five to to two thousand ten, let's say era, you had all those adjustable rate mortgages. You had the negative and mortgages. You had all of those kind of like exotic loan products, if you will, that all carried higher interest rates with them. Because they were a little bit exotic and they work differently. Like the NAGAM stuff, what that was is that you had an interest rate of X, so your interest is accruing at this level. If you want to, you can make a monthly payment at a 1% interest rate, right? So we'll allow you to make this minimum payment that doesn't even pay the interest building up for the month. And it obviously does not pay any principal off either. So your principal balance actually grows versus going down when you make a payment. So they gave you, it's called it was called an option arm. You can make this 1% interest payment. This is the minimum payment you have to make, and we're fine with you making that payment. Otherwise, you can make the interest-only payment, which is higher. That pays just the interest building up on your loan, but it does not knock any principal down. Or you can make a 30-year payment. So the 30-year payment would pay the interest and principal balance of equivalent to what a 30-year would be. Or you can make this 15-year payment, which would be the interest on the loan plus the equivalent principal reduction of a 15-year. All right, so 2012... Was the lowest that we got? I'm looking at the uh, the Fred chart right now. Uh, 2012. It looks like the lowest that it got on the average curve here was about 3.3. Uh, I'm seeing 3.34, 3.39, so on. And the lowest that we got during COVID was in end of 2020, beginning of 2021. We were hovering right around 2.6 to 2.7. Yep. So. Ultimately speaking, the difference in buying power there is actually pretty big, but the difference in raw interest rate is relatively low. Right. So. Okay. Yeah. And in both those situations, it was the government, the feds just saying, yeah, we'll buy every mortgage you will sell us. Bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> the pool of money is unlimited right now. Right. Yep. And so that's, so so going back to the whole Fed thing, right, we we're talking about, that's how we started going down this this rabbit hole, was the Fed's raised interest rates, that caused mortgage rates to go down. So there's two things the Fed's can do to affect mortgage interest rates. Number one is they can raise their Fed's funds rate. So the Fed's funds rate is not the mortgage rate, it's basically short-term rates. Home equity lines of credit, auto loans, credit card debt, things like that. So when they raise their rate, so the Fed's funds rate, home equity lines of credit went up, all those short-term types of loans went up. When short-term interest rates go up, long-term rates go down. That's the general premise. That's why our mortgage rates went down, because they're long-term. So then Sarah had a follow-up question right along those notes. Uh, 
She's got a lot of equity in the house. Refinancing probably wouldn't make sense to use that equity to put on like a three-season porch or something. Would it make more sense to do a second mortgage or home equity line or refinance the main one? Um, Assuming your main loan, so assuming your main loan is at around that three level, give or take, because that's what you refinance to sometime in 2020 or 2021, more than likely it's probably better just add a second mortgage onto the mix. But again, there's a lot that goes on with that too. You know, I have a couple clients right now doing cash outs where they're giving up a three and a quarter and they're going to six because it makes more sense to do that. In this particular case, with one of my clients, they want to buy a second home in Wisconsin. So they want to buy a cabin on the lake in Wisconsin. Well, if you put the financing on that cabin in Wisconsin, you're looking at six and a quarter on a 30 year fix. If we do a cash out refinance on your primary residence so you can just go buy that cabin in cash, now you're at you know, five, eight, seven, five or five, seven, five, right. You know, just under six, whatever I ended up quoting them there. So, you know, it was like, do you want to have the financing on there and have the higher rate? Or do you want to have the financing here and have the lower rate? Well, they chose to put the financing in their primary house, have the lower rates and then go buy that thing with cash. Yeah. So depends on what you're, I mean, it, it, you got to look at what the alternative is. A lot of people are going to be like, I'm at three and a quarter. I'm not giving that thing up for anything. Right. In a lot of cases, yeah, that's going to be the right route to go. Uh, in some cases, it's not going to be. So that's a good question. Very good question, Sarah. Um, so getting back to what we said. Oh, so the feds, so they can they can raise short-term rates. That's going to lower our mortgage interest rates. What they can also do is just buy mortgage-backed security bonds. So the more money that gets pumped in the mortgage-backed securities market, and the government can be a buyer in that market if they want to, and we're talking to the tune of billions of dollars each month, if they pump that much money into that market, that will also drive our mortgage rates down. That's what they did back in the crash is like, how do we get out of this thing? How can we help? Well, we're going to buy up all these mortgages and pump all that money into that mortgage-backed securities market, and that's going to push rates down. So they can't directly do it. They can't just say, rates. I need we need rates at 3.5, and, and they make this mandate that puts rates at 3.5. They can't do that. They have to put money into a market in order to kind of like artificially drive that mortgage rate down. So that's the two ways that you can affect it. Sure. Long answer. Okay, getting to the micro unit thing. So we were talking about that. So we brought up the micro unit thing. I think we talked about this a little bit before the show mm-hmm. too. So I saw an article yesterday about there is some of a somewhat of a governmental push um, to build more micro unit buildings. So what does that mean? Well, the government's looking at building right now. So home building or any sort of construction um, is more expensive now. So how do you have, uh, how do you build more affordable housing? They're kind of pushing towards giant apartment buildings where each unit is 350 to 500 square feet. So basically every single unit, there's efficiency unit, you know, one big room, everything's in one room. You have a little bathroom, maybe off to the side or something. And that's what you get. And where, and, and, and where did you see that the government was pushing this? Like, so this was a this was a, a YouTube video. So I'm I'm on this thing called the National Real Estate Post. Okay. And they brought it up on their show yesterday. And so they brought up, you know, they they bring up articles and what they saw and this yep. and that and they talk about it. Um but the premise was it's that because affordable housing is an issue right now. Yep. And the government wants to somehow somewhat correct that or do something about it. So they're solution or their push now is to well let's build a bunch of these micro unit apartment buildings and drive the cost of of living down right what's your thoughts 
Well, what's, what's interesting about that is uh, the thing that you and I talked about a couple weeks ago, too, that um, um, it's called Nowhere to Live. Uh, that's one of the points that they were bringing up when the House Ways and Means Committee has been meeting to have a hearing regarding affordability. And the biggest two things they were bringing up was accessibility and um, affordability. And the accessibility was very much talking about how much, you know, like wh where's the zoning going? And too much of the zoning is, you know, if it's not residential, it's dedicated to single family homes and they need more that where you can get more people per square foot mm -hmm. um, into these areas. And exactly, you know, one of the key areas too they were talking about too was low income as well to be able to, you know, really squeeze that stuff in there and create more units because we're, we're millions down in units across country. Mm -hmm. I mean, millions of houses short. And there's just so much private equity groups that are coming in and, and, and you know, sweeping up properties to invest in them. And they're trying to make this so that the average homebuyer can go get a place to live. Um, you know, whether it's to buy own something or even if people are going to invest in properties, build properties, make something that people can afford rent wise and create more dwellings. Yeah. So you, and you've probably seen it too. So kind of just going back for our listeners, there's a lot of hedge funds or big investment groups out there that will go into, let's say Lakeville and they'll go in there and they'll try to buy a thousand homes in Lakeville yep. and then make them all rentals. Yep. Right. So then you have these huge groups that own all these homes. Um, it doesn't give the opportunity for, you know, your your run of the mill family out there to buy those homes because they're owned by this by these larger groups and yep. they will only rent them out. They won't resell them. Supposedly, the the answer to is 28 percent. So 28 percent of single family homes on the market are being swept up by these guys. Dang. Just that's a big number. And, and obviously, obviously being cash buyers are just sweeping them up. Is that the local or the national number? I think it's a national number. Yeah, because my understanding is that they've had a hard time here in Minnesota for yeah. some reason. Yep. But, yeah, it's it's wild. Uh, the most notorious name is probably BlackRock. Yep. Uh, kind of everyone's heard of them. And <laughs> yeah, it's, they are. <laughs> uh, they're huge. Yeah. I mean, we're talking talking real big money. <laughs> yep. yep. But they're not the only player out there. Yep. Uh, it's There's a lot of players in this game that are just trying to buy houses. Yep. It's different. Right. And, and and so that was one of the other things too with the with this House Ways and Means Committee uh, hearing, um, trying to figure out you know how can we differentiate, uh, make it more incentivized for the average home buyer to be able to take you know take that leap and buy a house and in in ways like limit these guys' incentives um, just so they can kind of like shift balance. Um, I mean, there's so much yet to see what comes out of that, but it, it does seem pretty pretty awesome for the average home buyer that maybe we'll get some you know added incentives for. And was most most of the talk around, I guess what what the government can do as far as tax ramifications, yeah, so like changing the tax code for if you are a BlackRock, let's say, and you're going to come in and do this, you have you're going to have a different tax code coming up potentially that's going to make that less attractive for you to go in there. That that's on the table as well, or on one of them, but then other things on the well was to, or as well was to increase it for the home buyer. Like if your, you know, first time home buyer credits could be increased or um, brought back, or you know, uh, anything that involves like interest deductions. I mean, anything they're they're more so laying the facts right now for here's the issues with accessibility and affordability. What ideas can we reach agreements to um, to try to you know change that outlook yeah. and and how people can be able to buy buy and afford homes. So I wonder if they, I'm just trying to think, you know, limit it to first time home buyers. They should just do it on a primary residence. If you're going to buy a primary residence, yeah. 
maybe open it up to that, you know, because yeah. you get a lot of first time home buyers that bought that townhouse, right? First, you know, young married couple, maybe one kid, they have that townhouse. Well, now they have three kids and they're expanding. They need, now they need to get into a single family home. You would think that would be also kind of like a, the ideal person to also offer maybe some of these benefits to versus just a straight first time home buyer. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's going to be interesting to see what, because something has to happen. And I, I think both sides, you know, the, these hearings are, are realizing that something's got to change. Yeah. Um, so that people can actually get out there and get a house. Um, well, whether or not it's, you know, middle class, low class, you know, first time or second time, fourth time home buyers, it's just ultimately the issue right now is who they're competing with and they're getting smoked out by, you know, cash buying peg groups and right. simply not enough places to even choose from in the first place. Yeah. That's the other thing too. I mean, construction continues to be slow. I just see it with our builders. Yeah. Um, it's getting better. Don't get me wrong. It's getting better. But um, it seems to me uh, from what I hear that labor is loosening it up. So people are actually calling builders now saying, you got anything for us? You got anything for us? Versus yeah. builders calling out saying, we need these framed. And they're like, we're tied up. You know, we're, yeah. we're four weeks out or whatever. It looks like it. the labor side is shifting back to where the labor is there. And and is more accessible, um, but I still think there's a lot of material shortages. I think which is the biggest backlog from what I'm hearing. Yep. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out here. Phone lines are open six five one six four seven two nine one zero. That is the call in line. If you have any questions or comments uh, this morning for us, um, you can also text us uh, as well. That text number is seven six three four four three five six six four. Again, 763-443-5664. Best question of the morning is going to win those St. Paul Saints tickets. So we got two pair of St. Paul Saint tickets to give away this morning to the best question. Uh, so again, feel free to reach out to us at any time during the show here. Uh, phone number seven, uh, 651-647-2910. And the text line 763-443-5664. Um, going back to the micro unit thing we are talking about, Evan kind of brought up an interesting thing what were you saying evan you're saying back in the day back in the old days (laughs) well yeah uh uh, a long time ago uh before any of us were born it used to be that a lot of people who lived in the city lived in what are now commonly referred to as flop houses which we would really just call like adult dorm living it would be small apartments oftentimes shared bathrooms between multiple units you know two to four units would be sharing a bathroom and it was, you know, you had a bedroom. You had your place that you slept in, and then you went and worked or, you know, went out on the town, etc. And that's the, how apartments were in, like, downtown Minneapolis. Uh, the, all of the all of those old buildings that are kind of on the north side of downtown that are sort of low-lying, now they're mostly completely commercialized and no residential space in them. But at one point, they were flop houses where people had very affordable living in order to just basically, you know, single people that are working to make ends meet. And, yeah, after the New Deal, things were changed. we got to incentivize single-family homes. we got to get rid of the flop houses, And that happened <laughs> everywhere. It wasn't just here. Uh, you know, so across the country, it was a push to, you know, if you're going to rent, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be a big rental. You're going to have your own bathroom. It's going to be nice. Uh, but, you know, we want everyone to be buying houses. Post-World War II, that was the big push. Everybody buys a house. And that's, you know, like my whole area out in Robbinsdale, there's a lot of houses that were built between 1950 and 1970. And that's all that big push. 
to just get people out of these little teeny tiny apartments and into the the economic driver of America of the single family home. Yep. And you know maybe we're seeing a reversion of that when we're talking about these micro units and stuff. It's just we can't build enough houses anymore. <laughs> I mean, you, you can obviously build way more units faster by doing that. Yeah. And obviously the cost is going to be cheaper because as you build up and as you shrink the unit size down, I mean, obviously that's that's going to be a, a cheaper per unit route to go. So it'd be interesting to see what kind of comes out of this. Yeah. If we see more of those popping up and seeing that become a more popular, I guess, item. One of the, you know, just in general too, if and he was adding a whole bunch of more um, units for people to rent, one of the things that I was uh, listening to one of the politicians in that uh, hearing talk about was kind of the whiplash effect of if you add a whole bunch of rental units and there's not, you know, so let's say actual inventory to buy, like an actual single family home is, or an actual condo that you would own is decreased, and but you're adding more rental units, what that is effectively doing is drives up the rental market because um, if that's like pretty much people's only option, so they end up paying more to rent a unit, cuts into the cash flow to be able to even buy a house. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like a it's like a vicious circle. Yeah, because how do you it, save money if your rent's up? How do you save money for the down payment on the house? Exactly. One of them. One of their points was is hey, rents are going up, so people are saving less, less chances to go out and buy a house. Very interesting. So then you, then it goes to you know is are we going to see more government? sponsored or subsidized down payment assistance programs popping up because of it because i mean in general that's that's probably the biggest hurdle to home ownership is not necessarily that you don't make the income to qualify or you don't make the income to make the payment um you might not be able to make enough to save enough for the down payment exactly because people are paying more in rent and it's their mortgage (laughs) right Yeah. yeah i mean that's my point exactly i mean it's it's, I mean, yeah, you, you look at home prices, you look at interest rates, they both went up. The affordability to buy a house went down this year because both kind of aspects went up. But, I mean, how much more did rent go up from last year to this year or two years ago to this year? Yeah. I think the increase is even more than right. what a mortgage payment went up. Yep. So a lot of there's a lot of uh, cats to skin in this game. <laughs> For sure. You know, <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, let's, let's shift over to the short-term versus long-term rental. We started talking a couple weeks ago about that. Yep. Um, huge surge of short-term rentals coming out there as technology gets better, as people wrap their heads around it a little bit more. I mean, I almost talk to more people now in the investment property game talking about short-term rentals versus the long-term rental. Yep. Um, and so we started talking about pros and cons and we have different tax benefits and things like that that come with it. Um, so let's shift gears to that a little bit. Um, I'll have you kind of take the reins here. Absolutely. Jonathan. So won't overlap too much from what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, but essentially there was, there was four major categories that we wanted to cover on the show, which was the difference between the two in tenants or guests, uh, income variances, management insurance variances and tax lives and depreciation benefits. So we did cover, um, back on that show, if you want to go back, uh, rewatch the stream, um, differences with tax lives and benefits, depreciation, tenants and guests. So a couple areas that we didn't really get a chance to cover, though, were income and management variances and insurance as well. So I can just kind of kick off a couple of those things, the things that I wanted to kind of uh, make sure we get covered that differenti- differentiates the two. And um, starting with income, I guess, if you're going out to invest a property, let's say you're going to invest in or you're considering a long-term rental or a short-term rental, the biggest takeaway to have there is that your short-term rental is 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 going to have a higher 
opportunity. Like, you know, your, your cash flow ceiling is higher with short-term versus long-term, but that long-term's benefit is that it's stable. It's predictable. You set it, you know, your tenant's in there for a you know, set amount of time, usually at least a year, and that, that income stays constant. When you are, have a short-term rental, you, you, you can get significantly more, but you can also hit periods where you could get hardly anything. Um, especially if you end up having a unit that is, um, say, seasonal uh, or something that is in a market that everybody's buying into and now it's becoming saturated, uh, it could end up driving that down. But if you got basically a risk tolerance and a interest in seeing how much income you can really get out of investment property, short-term rentals are going to have the higher opportunity for that. Um, just you sacrifice some stability. Um, when it comes to even uh, management, you know, just think about owning either the either of these units, and you know, what does it take in, you know, day to day, month to month, you know, whether you're hiring cleaners, lawn service, you know, whether or not your your site even needs that. Uh, in the the actual array is very very different, but at a very high level, a long term rental. Uh, if you're hiring even a, a management company that's going to cover you know any of the you know activities that that tenant may need, budget you know anywhere like eight to ten percent, like that's how much in your income that needs to be kind of set aside to run that unit. The short-term rentals, um, I'm actually seeing with a lot of our clients when I actually do have access to their financials that it's like they're in the 30s, uh, so it's three times as much to manage a short-term rental. And a lot of the, you know, someone might ask, well, how is it possibly that much different? But think about a long-term rental, um, those actual tenants or your, or your guests that live in there, they're cleaning their own place, that's that's their home. When you have a short-term rental and you actually are having guests in there, people that are staying there, they could be for a couple of days, it could be for a weekend, weeks. Um, at the end of the day, you're always then requiring to clean it and you're preparing it for the next person. Yeah. So your management fees are going up because you're paying for uh, cleaners to come in there, keep the unit ready. Uh, you're then also, you know, paying more if you're always having people coming in and do repairs or uh, improvements, maintenance, um, things of that sort. And then obviously, too, in many of these short-term cases, if you have a place that actually has a yard, you know, you you for sure now have lawn care. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes, you know, in a, in a, in a long-term rental, uh, you can have these tenants got their own lawn as well, too. So that is a big variance in there. Um, other things too, uh, when it comes to insurance, um, I mean, I think you had a point on that from the last time that you wanted to talk about. I mean, some of the things that only that I was thinking about uh, between these two when it comes to insurance was think about a long-term rental. You're generally going to have your tenants be responsible for uh, should be an H O six policy, I believe, where they're they're basically covering their personal property and belongings, mm -hmm. and then when. Uh, you as the as, as just like let's say you know like in my townhouse i basically have a building po uh, policy coverage that covers the interior construction and then hoa is covering the exterior shell now when you're in a short term though you, you you likely have furnishings that now you also need to cover too so but i could turn over to you have any had points on that i think that i liked last i mean time. yeah exactly so so not only do you have to be worried about the fact that now you're you're doing a furnished rental you, I mean, there's the other aspect to that as well, where you're having to keep up with the wear and tear on those items, too, yeah. which is always worth pointing out with short-term rentals. But the other big thing, too, is as a small investor, you know, if you're talking about someone who owns less than five properties, you're probably still investing on a personal lines basis. But companies can be very, very finicky about short-term rentals. Um, dwelling fire policies, long-term rentals, you know, you you 
you buy your second home, you decide to keep your first one rented out, and you put a dwelling fire on it. Dwelling fire is basically that structure policy. You're saying, I am not responsible for the contents of the house. You buy your own renters policy for your couch, your computer, all that stuff. Yep. I'm just worried about protecting my asset, which is the home and the bank's asset, obviously, because the bank is requiring you to have insurance on the house itself. Uh, that's easy. But those short-term rentals, a lot of companies have not gotten hip to the short-term rental thing, the VRBO kind of thing. <laughs> Some carriers are great. Um, you know, Travelers has a product for it. Auto Owners has a product for it. Other carriers want nothing to do with it because they they see the the higher loss ratios there. Yeah. That, you know, because of the fact that damage to interior is now something that's on the table. Yep. Now you're talking about, oh, you still have to get a broad form policy that covers contents because you can't do dwelling fire on a short-term rental because you've got stuff in there. Yep. I mean, you can if you want, but now you're leaving all your stuff uncovered. Yep. And, you know, uh, from my perspective, that's probably not the right play. Yeah, and and, and that's even just a, a great point in general, too. That kind of goes back to the differences between these two type of properties in regards to your tenants or guests. Um, when you're in a long-term rental, the person that is there, going back to, the, that's still their home. You know that they own it or they're renting it. It's home to them. They're not going to trash the place. And I don't want to say that anybody that buys a short-term rental place can get trash, but let's just be realistic in, in, in all reality here, you're having guests that are there for a couple of days at a time and it's not home. Right. You know, they may accidentally break something, you know, but the point is, is you are going to have higher wear and tear. Absolutely. People that aren't going to treat it like it's their own. Yeah. Um, so outside of insurance aspects, yeah, do got to be prepared for probably replacing things more often. So I, so we're leaving Tuesday for Nashville for my wife's 40th birthday. Uh, so we're going to go out there for a few days. So we did a VRBO deal out there. The options I had was you can put a $5,000 deposit down and we hold on to that money and then we refund it to you, you know, as long as there's no damage and stuff like that. Yeah. Or you can Ooh. pay, um, <laughs> yeah. or you can pay a $99 basically supplemental insurance yeah. deal. And I was like, well, I'm going to just pay the 99 bucks and not have you hold five grand of my money hostage because you thought I broke something, but I yep. didn't. And now you were holding that, right? So, And that brings up a great point because these the companies that manage this stuff, you know, VRBO, uh, Airbnb and yep. stuff, they offer, they offer things that appear to be insurance. But me as an insurance professional, I'm very suspect of them because they do their, you know, it's it's kind of like the... You know, the Uber driver guarantee, you know, where Uber has insurance on the stuff. However, the actual driver is not the one that's being covered by Uber. They're doing that for the the customer, right? There's There are elements to this that make me very, very suspect where it's like they're protecting you as the consumer, you know, when, when you can, oh, I'll buy the supplemental insurance. It's like the rental car insurance and stuff. Mm-hmm. They're protecting you to make you feel more at peace. They aren't really worried about the person that owns the home, in my experience. Yeah. It is up to you to get the right coverage for your stuff. Because ultimately speaking, um, you know, sure, they may be extending that coverage to you, but if you are not in the bounds of the policy that's actually on that property, the main policy, then whatever they're supposed to pick up, they're going to say, oh, no, we don't cover short term rentals. That's what you were using it for? Claim denied. Or, or maybe claim approved, you're non-renewed. You'll have to go to a specialty lines carrier after this, which, <laughs> yep. which is like it's great. Yeah, you got that, you got that twenty-five thousand dollar water claim covered, and now your rental property insurance went from roughly twenty-five hundred bucks a year to eight grand a year, and it'll be that way until you can qualify <laughs> for a regular form policy. You know, another two or three years. 
So there's a lot of pieces that go into this, and it pays to think about them before something bad happens. For sure. But even with all these moving parts, right, there's a shift. There's definitely a shift that I've seen where people are definitely looking at short-term rentals more than long-term rentals. Um, especially if, especially if you're take the classic person that lives in Minnesota wants to buy a short-term rental in Florida or Arizona or something, because now they get to use that property when they want to as well, because it's not going to be booked out 365 days a year, right? There's going to be some vacancies and gaps and stuff. You can block it out. You can say, well, we're going to be down there every August or whatever. Right. Um, every August and every Christmas, we're going to go down there and the other other 48 weeks of the year it's open and up there on this the sites that we choose yep and and you know it's my job as an insurance professional to be a screen door on the submarine and say these are all the things that are going to go wrong (laughs) um that's that's how i make the sale but it's also how i protect you because if i don't point out the things that are going to go wrong then a couple years down the line it's well why didn't you tell me that this (laughs) right so so yes i'm all doom and gloom and I will also say that um, VRBOs are a tremendous money-making opportunity. If you go in with your eyes open, yep. you consult with professionals who have been through this before. Yep. I would highly, if if you are a person that is not savvy to this stuff and doesn't want to deal with working with professionals, long-term rentals are a much more established place. Yep. It's e- easier to kind of self-guide on that i still don't recommend it but definitely when you're talking about short-term rentals it pays to really dig into it and see what other people's experiences have been for sure yeah and that's what's been kind of cool with you know just in my day-to-day job as well just working with these people that are managing this stuff and seeing what you know they like about it and and the fact that they just they still keep going back i mean i'm going Mm -hmm. last week i flew down into dallas Uh, i had to go see properties in dallas texarkana Drove to Little Rock, Hot Springs, Broken Bow, Oklahoma, and back to Dallas. And I mean, over half that trip was rentals, short-term rentals, or conversions uh, from Motel Sixes to short-term rentals. Um, just it's it's hot, and it's still hot, and it's it, it seems like something that is definitely going to be a change of the times. And I mean, even ancillary impacts or drivers for it that we talked about last time too. Just in general, since COVID, most people would love to rent their own space rather than go to a hotel that's got, mm-hmm. you're, you know, sharing common areas with a bunch of people. Right. So they're big. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I, I mean, I had a, I did a loan for a guy where he had just a, a two bedroom, one bath condo in downtown Boston. You know what I mean? You yeah. don't think Boston, like I've never heard of people. It's like, we're going to Boston this winter for vacation. You know what I mean? You said that to me, but one of my best friends likes to go to Boston for the Boston Marathon. He's run in the Boston Marathon several times, but he also likes to go sometimes just to watch. Oh, but that's but that's that's a very specific thing, right? That's an event. It's not where you know up here we hear the we're going to Florida, we're going somewhere warm, right? We're going to Florida, we're going to Arizona, we're going to you know Cabo. You know you have those big areas that you hear all the time. Boston is just. Not something I hear where people are going to all the time from here. Completely fair. Right? (laughs) So he's got a two-bedroom, one-bath condo in the middle of downtown Boston. I don't know if there's any attractions or anything down there at all. But he literally makes, he grosses $86,000 a year. At least on his two years worth of tax returns that I had from him, he grossed $86,000 on a two-bedroom condo in Boston by converting it to a short-term rental. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. I was looking at this. He was telling me, he's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm... 
buying a new house in Minnesota because I'm moving there and stuff, and and I live in a single family, you know, outside of Boston now. But I kept my I kept that first condo that I bought, you know, and it's a short term rental and stuff. So as I'm taking the application, I'm writing all this stuff down. So then when I actually got his tax returns, I'm looking at it, I'm like. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> I am like that condo has turned out very well for this guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know? This is this is another thing that I John, I'm sure you can speak to is how there's been this ongoing like power struggle back and forth in a lot of townhome and condo associations of how much rental to allow, how much short term rental to allow, if any. Um, I, I do know I have worked with a couple people where they were planning on doing short-term rentals yeah. and then the bylaws changed yep. like within six months of them buying it because people didn't want to deal with short-term rentals in the building. Um, so, you know, how that stuff shakes out, that's definitely something that needs to be researched if you're thinking, exactly. you know, I'm going to get into this. And then you buy the unit and, oh, oh, actually the board <laughs> is planning on revoking my yep. ability to do this. Yep. Oh, we're over the twenty percent limit, so now no one can rent out anything. Oh, oh, that's really bad. It's 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 funny you bring that up because it's like that was almost telepathic communication there. Because I was going to kind of close with that's probably the last thing I'd feel I didn't talk about is that pre research when you are going to go into either is yeah are you going to end up buying a property that you plan on short term rental that is all of a sudden restricted. Um, I know a lot of our clients that I've been seeing that are, had this stuff originally in California. Who knows if California's ever going to try to restrict it, but there's been talks of too much of the beach homes now are all short-term rentals. And so anybody that actually wants to live on a beach home has been getting frustrated that, dude, everything around me is short-term rentals. Like, just, just I want this to be my home because they just have that much money. Yeah, <laughs> right. Know? But, it, you know, even even um, we had one just, just a few months ago um, that, was for sale on Cedar Lake, you know, down just south of Prior Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually somebody who works, well, uh, one of Jason Walgrave's uh, agents was listing it, but it was actually a girl that works for me. Uh, so her sister, so her home, like they had this little cabin on Cedar Lake that huh. I was like, man, it'd be nice to sweep that up as an Airbnb. But my concern was, is what would happen if they followed Prior Lake suit and restricted them? Yeah. Like, and I don't know what, I don't know what would happen if you're in the middle of owning this thing, you buy this up, planning on short-term rental, and then you get, you know, pushed out of it, restricted out of it. You know, I suppose if that's if that's the deal, if there's no grandfathering in, yeah, you know, is your next play there to? I mean, I suppose try to make it a long term rental at that point. But if you're buying a cabin on the lake, I mean, that's not your ideal long term rental situation. Yeah, typically, I would imagine because you know, the, typically, if you're buying on a lake, the price you paid for that house is higher. Property taxes a little bit higher, things like that. I mean, there's a there's a certain cap on a long term rental where it's like I'm not going to be able to get more than X for this property. Yep. On the on the short term rental side, like you said, you can make more income on it. You can charge accordingly based on what your expenses are and stuff yep. like that. And there's more an opportunity there to make money. Um, but long term rental, it's like there's a certain cap where someone's going to be like, I just I can't I can't afford more than this every single month after month after month. Correct. Yeah. So back on the on the uh, HOA point though too with allowing those the nice thing about that that i think is has been a change probably in the last it's gonna be the last decade is so go back prior to last decade i feel there was a uh, i'm trying to get the proper word but there was a, a negative view on renters like if you were a renter you know these townhouse associations were just like mm, we don't want renters in here right yeah and Including the association that I that I uh, owned or still own, but we used to actually live in, it was restricted. There was there was rentals were not allowed, and then it reached a point where uh, there was a realization that dude, sometimes people just don't want to own houses and they want to rent, and 
actually what thankfully helped push it over the edge for them to allow renters was I believe it was VA wouldn't actually back any loans into any townhouse association that restricted rentals. So we actually, thankfully to them and to allow people to even buy into the neighborhood, we had to change the bylaws and allow rentals. And then we just had rules, you know, to kind of like prevent an investor coming in, had to live in the unit for a year before it could be a rental. And so that's where, you know, I, I think we're actually in our 144 unit community, one of one or two rentals. It's hmm. there was at one point like 15 of us, but everybody eventually sold them. And I'm like, I'm just keeping this. It's a good cash cow and right. it's doing well. But the townhouse interest for me is I don't, the HOA fees covers the, uh, you know, all the lawn care, snow removal. So I'm, I'm literally just, I'm, I'm renting the unit. It's, right. It's easy. It's the easiest thing for me to rent right now. I have heard some horror stories about the, the live-in requirements not being disclosed yeah. and being missed. <laughs> um, I, I haven't worked with anyone who's run into this, but I have, I have read accounts on this online where they talk to people and they say, yeah, rentals are allowed. Absolutely. You know, the yeah. association allows it. You know, the, the selling, the selling realtor, you know, it says, oh, yeah, it's no problem. And then it turns out that there's you have to live there for 18 months or something like that before that that <laughs> yeah. actually kicks in. Yeah. And then it's, oh, oh, good. Whoops. Yep. <laughs> you know, you're you're there setting things up and, you know, you, someone comes and knocks on your door and goes, when are you moving in? Oh, we're going to use it as rental. And they just frown and shake their head. And they go, no, I don't think you are. I don't think you are. You know what? Ha- I suppose what happens at that point. So in, you sell it, you know yeah. what I mean. You, you got you literally in got to our turn association. And, we did force them to sell, which yeah. was just it. It seemed crazy that you that you could do that, like, right? No, no, you got to sell. That's what they did. Associations can foreclose on someone if yeah. you if you if you own a place that's got an association on there and you don't pay association dues, yeah. they can foreclose on you. Associations yeah. can. So that's another thing too that. Keep in mind there, people, if you're if you think you might want to stiff your association for a little <laughs> yeah. a little bit, they can yeah. foreclose on you, so be yeah. careful with that. Yeah. Uh phone lines are still open, six five one six four seven two nine one zero. We still have those uh St. Paul Saints tickets to give away to the best question of the morning here. You can call us with your questions or text us with your questions. That call in number again, six five one six four six two nine one zero. And we also have that text line at seven six three Four four three five six six four. You can actually join us on Facebook Live too. So if you go uh, to Facebook and search for Minnesota Home Talk, um, you can watch us live there. You can submit a question through Facebook Live as well, and we'll answer it there. But it does not get you in the running for for any of the tickets. So yeah, so the association thing is interesting. I've seen that before. I've seen. I have a couple. Yeah. I've seen it before where someone got foreclosed on by association. It was. It was a little, it was more back in the day, back in the crash, kind of when you were <laughs> yeah, upside yeah. down and it's like, which one's going to foreclose first type of deal? Is it going to be yep. the lender on there, the association? Um, I don't see it a whole lot now anymore, but yeah. Yeah, even even back in, in, so in this community that I have the property and that was actually one of the drivers too for there was the foreclosure issue was if, hey, if we don't allow rentals too, these things were just foreclosing left and right back in 08 and stuff and always made all these vacant units and it's like these renters allowing people to rent is going to maintain like the value of the community because these people these people are going to have homes and it's going to feel homely rather than just run down place and and you got association dues coming in on those units versus correct. sitting yeah, making and not, no payments coming in for sure yeah so that was the other thing too is you know every loan pro- program out there has requirements on associations meeting a certain budget meeting certain requirements um, for that before you can lend on it. Um, certain amount of units can't be more than 
uh, two months behind on association dues. You yep. know, there's there's rules around that on the lending side as well. Yep. Um, so there's definitely there's definitely rules on that. But I mean, from what you're seeing, Jonathan, are you seeing are you seeing more people doing short term rentals with associations because you have you 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 have less things to manage because the association kicks in and does a lot of the stuff. I'd say that's probably fifty fifty. I mean, some of these that I'm seeing in these these random like mountain areas right now, where people are buying ten bedroom, sixteen bedroom, like monstrosities, where they're getting over thousand dollars a night for them. I, those are, to my understanding, not in HOAs. Um, but there's a lot that, uh, like right now, anybody that's doing them in San Diego, that I'm seeing a lot of. There'll be one of those buildings that might have like four hundred units in it, but they're mixed apartments and short terms. And so, but in those mm. cases, you know, people sleeping up um, in those condo areas, yeah, the, the HOAs or even just their, their monthly dues are covering all that maintenance. And so it just keeps it managed. Uh, your uh, management fees are obviously just easy to maintain because you're not, oh, who's going to cover lawn care? Who's going to go fix my irrigation system? Because some, it's on someone else's plate. So it's just a flat, easier to predict overall fee that yeah. puts it on someone else's plate. Gotcha. I got a question from the one and only Big Biggie. Uh, if you have a short-term rental, can you do the cleaning yourself and have your LLC keep the cleaning fee, or do you have to have professional service do it for VRBO or Airbnb? So I've actually seen that cleaning fee. It's it's clearly a big variable. Some people are charging a hundred bucks. Some will charge a couple hundred bucks. It's it's kind of the shady part about them it seems like like if, you, if you're actually going to go rent a place you should check what's the cleaning fee because <laughs> it may look on the surface that it's cheaper but i do know a lot of people that if they live close to their short-term rental will be the ones that that are handling the cleaning okay and you can charge a cleaning fee even if you're Correct. the one doing the cleaning absolutely so there's no some people are doing that with a you know a smaller 55 or 100 dollars cleaning fee but they're the ones doing it there's no like you don't need to actually show that hey I, I paid such and such firm to clean this from from a rental uh from a renter's standpoint is there a way to see how often the cleaning fee has been charged on that unit not sure about that one but i would I, i'm curious about that because that's the sort of thing <laughs> that you see sometimes in hotel reviews and stuff yeah where it's like oh yeah we got hit with this bill uh you mm-hmm. know when we were checking out where they said we needed to do this this and this and they were charging us you know, for damage to the room and so yeah. on, and you see a whole bunch of these one-star reviews or whatever. And I don't know if that shows up on VRBO or not. I, I mean, like, honestly, I haven't done a lot of travel uh, to VRBOs or or Airbnbs or the similar competing sites and stuff, so I just don't know the answer to that one. Yeah, I mean, kind of off-topic, but I, it, it, if anybody, you know, rents cars, too, that is something to watch that I've noticed in the last couple of years is, I mean, I, I rent cars all the time. I, every other week I'm in a rental car, and I always just elect to fill it up and I will return it. I, I know it's full. I just filled it up a mile and a half ago and I'll get my bill and there'll be two gallons of gas charged to it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these, you know, rental car companies are always like, take pictures of the rental car. Yep, they'll always, they'll always, just, always, always, always take pictures yeah. of the rental car where you pick it up. Just, just 100%. little here, little there. Yeah, just, just grabbing just, just little. Figure if you can get two gallons of customer over thousands of customers, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. their gallons are like eight, eight or nine bucks, bucks yeah. a gallon. They charge yeah. you the labor for yeah. filling up the tank. They had to drive it to the gas station. You see? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because you definitely didn't fill it up all the way. So, uh, yeah, no. There's there's always gotchas that you have to watch out for as a consumer on this kind of stuff. Yep. yep. Definitely, the whole pictures thing is great, even with your Airbnb. I mean. How hot or how does it really take if you're checking into one to walk around, 
snap 10 pictures on your phone. So when you leave and be like, that was working when I was there, just in, just in case you come across that shady owner. But Do you do pictures or video? Both? Video is probably actually better idea. I mean, I you mean, can literally you can, just walk around, you know yeah. what I mean? You can just, you, yep. know, you know, you do one of those. And, and yep. I will say, just, just as a general insurance standpoint, it's actually a good idea to do that in your house. Uh, ideally, like once a quarter, but truthfully, it's going to be like once a year for most people. Yeah. Walk through your whole house just with your camera running. Sweep every room. Because if you go to work one day and you come home and your house is gone, having to actually list out every single thing suddenly becomes really hard to mentally catalog. Like for sure, just how many records were sitting there? Yeah. How many pictures did I have in the living room? You know that kind of stuff. Yeah, because every little thing comes up on insurance. If you're if you're renting out these units and stuff, um, every time someone checks out, you should be walking through with a camera and making sure that you know it's like yeah you know your place, yeah. but hey wait a minute. Wasn't there another painting in this bedroom? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it's it's completely possible that yeah. you're just you're you're in the zone, you're cleaning, and it's like, wait, when did this disappear? Yeah, it's important to be able yep. to keep track even, of that even kind like uh, knickknacks on coffee tables and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute, we're missing yeah half the cups. <laughs> yeah. When did that happen? And maybe it happened one at a time, and you just didn't notice, and no one was reporting damage. Yeah. Or maybe someone just you know left with eight yep. pieces of glassware or whatever. Yep. So. All good advice. Um, best way to get a hold of us throughout the week, you can go to uh, mnhometalk.com, and we are there. Uh, otherwise, you can uh, reach out to us uh, anytime to the radio show. We're here every Saturday from 7 to 8 a.m. Answering your toughest mortgage and real estate questions. We appreciate you listening to us this morning, and we will be back next week. Take care. The views expressed were not necessarily those of the management or ownership of KSTPAM 1500 ESPN.